Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation with Dr. Elena Ratner. Dr. Ratner is Assistant Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Susan Higgins. So first, I wanted to just tell people what what the term gynecologic oncologist means. A lot of people are really familiar with medical oncologists who give chemo, but they're not really familiar with what gynecologic oncologists do in the, in the cancer world. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the, the role that you have in cancer care. Sure. Gynecologic oncologists are a very uh, special um, specialty, which I actually think is the best specialty there is. Uh, we get to take care of women who are diagnosed with gynecologic cancers. Uh, the reason why I think it's such a fantastic specialty is that this specialty allows me to take care of my patients from the moment they just start having symptoms through their surgery through the chemotherapy they needed, and through the rest of their treatment. Um, so um, I have the highlight of my specialty is the relationships that I make with my patients uh, because we are together for many, many years. Yeah, and I think it's really one of the few cancer specialties where, if not the only where you're doing the surgery, you do the chemotherapy, and, and everything that pretty much comes with it throughout the course of their disease, right? So you have this long relationship with the patient. Exactly correct. And um, a lot of our patients uh, don't even have cancer. A lot of our patients are something we call pre-vivors. They are the women who, for whatever reason, we feel might be at higher risk for certain gynecologic cancers. And we uh, monitor them and surveillance them uh, so that they don't develop these cancers. So it's a very, very broad population of women. I have young women. I have women who are also young, but not that young. Um, and we take care of all these populations. So that's fascinating that the previvor group who is high risk, um, maybe you could talk about that and, and how do you identify them and then what types of things do you do for them? Sure. So the cancer therapy is changing. We, for many years, have tried really hard to cure cancers, to find new chemotherapies, to find new ways to treat them, and we have been successful with that. We then started paying attention and concentrating on diagnosing these cancers early, something called early cancer detection. But now the future is different. Now we are looking to prevent those cancers. I don't want you to even get a stage one cancer. I want you to get cancer never. So the key is to identify the women who we uh, worry might be at increased risk for those cancers and start watching them early and preventing those cancers from happening. 
one of the most important uh, parameters, uh, parts of this risk assessment is family history. So women who have a strong family history of ovarian cancer, of breast cancer, and a couple of other cancers that we feel might be genetic are some of the women that we involve in our care and we do something called surveillance where we try to um, make sure that they don't develop cancers. So, so how does a person get to you? I mean, uh, they don't just show up in the GYN clinic. How, how do you, uh, you know, basically see these patients? Who is the person that sort of feeds patients to you into this high-risk clinic? Right, that's a great question. So um, actually, the, probably the best thing that has happened in this field has been Angelina Jolie. Um, and it's something we call the Angelina jo- Jolie effect. Um, after Angelina Jolie published the information about her personal genetic mutation, which is the BRCA mutation, and the prophylactic surgeries and different things that she has done not to develop, to develop uh, those cancers, it made this conversation public. And it allowed me to be able to go and give talks and uh, meet with young women and other women um, and bring this to their attention. Um, Angelina Jolene in the New York um, Times articles that she published made this conversation okay. And since that time, um, I have done many different seminars and conversations in the library, um, at JCC, at YMCA, all kinds of different places where we talk to women and telling them, learn your history, learn your family history, talk to your mom, talk to your grandparents, talk to your grandparents, find out what kind of cancers you carry in your genes. And with that, uh, women identify themselves when they consider to be at high risk, and they come to our practice, to our clinic. Yeah, and I know that the... um in, in being at Tumor Board and talking to the genetic counselors and reading their notes, this is something that um, they struggle with, which is getting an accurate family history. A lot of people don't know their family history, um, and it's now, I think, part of your health care in a way, right, to know your family history because then you can get plugged into the proper uh proper clinics um, like yours where BRCA genes are identified and um, maybe we could just talk about what happens when you identify, for example, someone who has a, a BRCA um, mutation, um, you know, how, how, does that, how does that work? Once you find out you have it, what kind of things can you do? Right. So, Susan, so, so you're absolutely correct about what you said. Um, the genetic counselors are key to this. We, in general, don't do a great job with pedigrees and figuring out family history. And, you know, we all know so much stories about our background, but you're right. The genes that we carry nowadays are more important than a lot of other things that we think are important. Uh, So, yes, um, for those women who do carry um, some sort of a family history, who we worry could be at higher risk, they must see a genetic counselor. Genetic counselor um, does a fantastic job drawing out a pedigree, truly learning about their history. Very frequently, genetic counselors will send the patient back to her family to get more information. 
Once that is done, if this woman is considered to be at high risk or we worry about her genetic uh, risk, uh, then we do genetic testing. And it's a very easy procedure. It's either just a saliva or blood test. In the older days, it used to be very expensive. And nowadays, it's not. So there's many different companies that do it. um, And it's very, very affordable. And a great majority of insurance companies actually cover it nowadays. If the women are found to have these mutations, um, and there's a number of them, but there's a few that are truly associated with increased risk, such as BRCA1 mutation and BRCA2 mutation, one of which, again, for example, Angelina Jolie carries. If those women have these mutations, then they do get involved with the surveillance program, both for breast cancer and for ovarian cancer. So for breast cancer, for example, there's a number of options that they um, can do uh, to um, do surveillance uh, to try to find the cancers early. Um, and those include mammograms and MRIs and certain other things they can do. For ovarian cancer, we also do a great major, great number of different things, which include ultrasounds and blood tests. But we also talk about uh, decrease in risk as to what you can do. For example, birth control pills um, are very protective for ovarian cancer. Um, anybody who has taken five years of birth control pills, their risk for ovarian cancer uh, becomes 50% less. And somebody who takes that's fascinating. I didn't know that. That's a a simple measure that no one would really kind of associate with a risk reduction. Exactly. I tell all my girlfriends at some point try to get in five years of birth control pills, really just for ovarian cancer reduction. Uh, And there's other things, you know, there's things for breast cancer, for for example, alcohol use. There's a lot of literature recently about how much alcohol increases your risk, Um, and we recommend less than five to seven drinks a week so that your breast cancer risk is not increased. Um, And those are just some of the examples of things that you can do in your own normal life uh, to decrease your risk of developing cancer in the future. We do ultrasounds. We do blood tests. Um, Those are not uh, perfect, but uh, we have a special center where we do those, and we feel very confident about those results. And then for those women who truly have these genetic mutations, which uh, increase their risk of developing ovarian cancer, sometimes when they get closer to menopause, we, we recommend a surgical intervention, and that way they never develop ovarian cancer. They're no longer at risk. Now, I, I think a lot of people, when they think about, oh, I have to have my ovaries out, I'm going to have a big incision in my belly, it's going to be a big deal. Um, I, I think that's changed in, in uh, the past several years, and, and you are uh, uh, an expert with the laparoscope, and this is now a relatively well-tolerated and, and quick procedure. Maybe you could talk about how, how do you remove the ovaries laparoscopically, and also the other part that I think is interesting is you have a group, again, a team of people that really look closely at the ovaries to see what's really going on there, and that is namely our pathologist. And they do a special sort of protocol, right, for looking at the ovaries a little closer than we would in, in some other situations. Right. So that's exactly correct. So yes, nowadays, uh, the great majority of everything that we do is uh, laparoscopic. Um, So for removing of ovaries, for example, you have tiny little two or three incisions, which are less than than the nail on your pinky. Uh, The surgery itself is quite quick, um, 30 minutes or so, and you go home certainly the same day, um, and there's very little recovery time. Nowadays, great majority of all the surgeries we do are laparoscopic. 
microscopic uh, things that in the past, just like you said, we used to do an incision and the recovery time used to be long. That is not the present and certainly not the future. The more the more time passes, the more we're going to do these things with very low um, invasive component. And of course, taking out the ovaries is not for everybody. You know, everything in life in general is risk benefit. So the, to take out the ovaries really would be for those women who are truly, truly at such increased risk for whom I feel that taking out the ovaries significantly decreases their risk um, of developing those cancers. Because the, the, the surgery of removing the ovaries is not significant, uh, but those women then go into menopause, and they go into very frequently early menopause and surgical menopause. So a lot of things that we do is we meet with those women beforehand. Um, again, in the older days, we used to take out ovaries, and then you know six months later, a year later, or never, we used to talk to them about their menopausal symptoms and deal with that. That's not the present. Now we meet with women before we take their ovaries out and we discuss with them the possible menopausal symptoms that they could have, and more importantly, what are the interventions that we're going to suggest. And the interventions are very vast. Uh, The range is from hormonal medicines uh, for women, and again, even for BRCA women, we have a lot of literature to say that those are very, very safe. Um, there is a lot of literature that says that uh, using estrogen in uh, women um, who have had their ovaries removed, even with BRCA mutation, does not increase the risk of breast cancer. Um, and actually taking out your ovaries decreases the risk of breast cancer by 50% if that is done before menopause. But that range is, is very vast. You know, uh, we do it, we do hormonal interventions, but for those women who either cannot have hormones or who do not want to have hormones, we use herbal medicines, we use acupuncture, we use exercise classes. So we have a very, very wide range of things that we can offer because the most important thing is that women should not live with those symptoms. Um, you know, we want to do a lot of things to prevent cancer, but at the same time, we do not want to subject them uh, to the side effects uh, because we can manage them. Well, that's great. I like this whole idea of the multidisciplinary approach. And uh, we'll, when we return, we'll talk a little bit more about those complementary um, complementary therapies. But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about gynecologic cancers with Dr. Elena Ratner. The American Cancer Society estimates that there will be 75,000 new cases of melanoma in the U.S. this year, with over 1,000 of these patients living in Connecticut. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. Early detection is the key, and when detected early, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence, SPORE, in Skin Cancer Grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. 
More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Susan Higgins. I'm here with my guest this evening, Dr. Elena Ratner, and we're talking about gynecologic cancers. Um, During the first half, one of the things we touched upon was um, the pathologist as a part of our team. And and as as opposed to some other specialties or uh, more so than other specialties, gynecologic oncology, I think, is one of the most... uh, multidisciplinary sort of team-oriented specialties. And that that teamwork starts at at the tumor board where we discuss our patients. And uh, I don't even, you know, I think a lot of patients don't even know about this, but when we're coming together to outline a management plan, um, including specifics about the cancer care and the therapies and sequencing, you know, we're all sitting in a room with our pathologists and uh, radiation oncologists are there, gynecologic oncologists are there, and, um, you know, we really outline it as a group and then and follow through as a group. Maybe we can just, you can just kind of just touch on how important it is to have a team uh, taking care of patients with gynecologic cancers. Sure. So I think uh, multidisciplinary approach is key, period. I think it's particularly important in gynecologic cancers because these cancers are so diverse and women can benefit from so many different aspects of care. So you're absolutely correct. Um, There's no way that anybody can do this alone. Tumor boards are are places where we meet, and during tumor boards, patients are discussed very carefully and very slowly and in great detail, and that way patients get benefit from opinions from many different um, Specialties, including joint oncologists. And again, this is not one joint oncologist. It's usually four, five, six joint oncologists in the room, so you hear multiple opinions. Radiation oncologists, those are the physicians who provide uh, radiation therapy to people. Um, radiologists, those are the physicians who uh, read um, CAT scans, MRI, and chest X-rays. Uh, pathologists who look at the slides and are able to provide us with a vast uh, amount of information regarding the tumors. Um, Nowadays, so much is done and it truly becomes personalized care. The care that I provide to one patient is very different from the care I will provide to somebody with exactly the same disease, with exactly the same cancer, an hour later in the day. We truly look at women, um, not as patients, not as cancers that they carry, but truly as women who are now suffering with these diseases. So every single woman needs different approach and different therapy and different chemotherapy and different radiation, different plan, but also different things for her quality of life. So a big component of this multidisciplinary approach is also physicians and providers from palliative care. Those are providers that help women cope with cancer diagnosis, with chemotherapy, with radiation, and with the symptoms that it brings. And then later on, survivorship. Um, that was a special provider who uh, follow women after their cancer um, was treated when they no longer have the cancer and they're cured, but the sequela of some of the treatments and the cancer continues, and those specific uh, providers uh, follow these women throughout the rest of their life. So this is truly, truly a multidisciplinary approach where women benefit from all these different opinions. And I think that's why Yale is so special, because here at Yale we are able to provide our 
our women and our patients with this great, great care, which is very, very comprehensive. Yeah, and I think um, the the sort of team effort, you know, right from the beginning, many of us have seen the patient up front, we're discussing our specific plans, and I think it's important because there's no replacement for the face-to-face encounters that we have. Um, we all have an electronic medical record, which has factual information, but this is where sort of the, I think at the tumor board, the art and science meet, where we're basically putting together uh, the factual information, but then really personalizing it. And then we can carry that plan all the way through. And I I really am glad you spoke um, about you addressed the palliative care and survivorship issues, because I think we have in, in the past, right, medicine's been focused on the cure and the cure and the cure alone. Um, But Patients felt very abandoned when it came to the follow-up and what do you deal with, how do we deal with all the sequelae of treatment? There are sexuality issues, there are pain issues. Maybe you could just talk about some of the palliative um, uh, tools we have now that we never had before. Um, we have a whole team for that now, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I will briefly mention, uh, just the follow up on the point that you made in terms of sexuality and menopause. Uh, I, myself with Dr. Mary J. Minkin, we started a special clinic at Yale at the Cancer Center that deals with sexuality, intimacy, and menopause. This was years ago. This was eight to nine years ago. And the reason we started this clinic was a patient that I came across who was a long cancer survivor. And in all our books, in all my charts, and at the time we still had favorite charts, it kept saying how this patient was a cure, a success, a miracle. And yet this patient was miserable. She, you know, we were all patting ourselves on the back that her cancer was cured, but we were not paying attention to her. We were not paying attention to who she was and how this cure affected her, how the chemotherapy and the radiation surgery, how that affected her. She was a young woman who was never able to return back to her normal life, even when the cancer was cured because of the side effects that she has experienced. So that's how the Sexuality, Intimacy, and Menopause Clinic was born. It was born for this one particular woman, and when she was better and she got remarried and she was happy and healthy, we realized how many of the women need this kind of care. Uh, and now this has became very much part of our routine treatment, and this is now a very, very successful practice that we have where we see a lot of women with gynecologic cancers, with breast cancers, with blood cancers, um, and so forth. So that's just one of the few examples of things that we can do to improve uh, quality of life. Palliative care is amazing. Um, Smilo uh, Cancer Center has truly expanded their palliative care over the past couple of years, and now we have a great team of physicians and social workers and uh, ministry, and they are truly able to help women as they cope with the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation and surgery. They help manage pain and um, depression. It's a truly, truly comprehensive approach. You know, a lot of my women, when we meet for their chemotherapy visits, we don't talk about chemotherapy. We talk about exercise and nutrition and the trips they're gonna take because that is truly the future. The future is that, yes, we do have to give chemotherapy. Unfortunately, that's still the case. The case is that as much as I try and as much as I'm gonna learn about your tumor and I'm gonna try to do something called targeted therapy where I will give you something that really 
knocks your tumor, but hopefully does not give you too many side effects. Nevertheless, chemotherapy is hard, but I don't want that to be your life. I want that to be something that you come and you get, and then us, all of us rallying around you to try to help you with the quality of life. So again, whether it's exercise, whether it's nutrition, whether it's pain management, whether it's menopausal symptoms, uh, whether it's uh, dealing with your children who are dealing with you having uh, the cancer diagnosis, that is what we provide. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, what's really nice about that also is that patients are always asking me, what can I do, right? What can I do to help myself? And it sounds like in that arena, you're really partnering with the patient and sort of empowering them, you know, sort of to, to kind of get back to their normal life and and maintain their health in ways that you can actually guide them and offer them services like the sexuality clinic. Um, and it sounds like that started with Dr. Minkin. Um, and it started from a little seed, and now it's a, a really well, I think, uh, recognized program at the center. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, you know, it started from that. It started from this need. It started from me coming across this patient and realizing that what we as physicians or providers consider a cure and a success is not that in the eye of the patient. And I think that's a very, very important point when I give my talks to residents or fellows. I always talk about that. Oh, I always say, make sure that that success Success is her success, not your success. Not your, right, because we have our own idea of what success is. Exactly. And um, I always tell residents also when I'm speaking to them, you know, there's, you know, because there are some people where there's a, a, a curative therapy. Um, there are other people where it may not be curative but helpful. But then when we go beyond that, there's always something you can do for the patient. And I try to get them to think outside of the realm of the very hardcore sort of Western medicine you can give them chemo, you can give them radiation. We don't want them to stop there with their thinking. We want them to think in this more holistic way. Um, and I, I actually went to uh, the University of Rochester Medical Center where, you know, George Engel was sort of the, the founder of the psychosocial or psychobiological approach to the patient where we, we don't just treat the disease, we treat the patient in their entirety. And that was a big emphasis at our medical school. And I've kind of carried that through in my practice. Absolutely. The sexuality and menopause clinic that we do, we actually do it um, in a collaboration with a psychology. Dwayne Fenn and his uh, team uh, have always done this with us because we very quickly realized that maybe 50, if not 40% of the women's problems are physiologic and a great, great component is, is psychologic and that you cannot walk this alone. So we very much provide this multidisciplinary approach to them. Right. And uh, again, mental health has always been in the background, sort of in the shadows of, of health in general. Right. And now we're realizing that you know, there's a tremendous fallout when people have their lives sort of swept out from under them, sort of the pulling of the rug out from under them. Um, I have this conversation with patients all the time that now they've got this uh, tremendous challenge to kind of rebuild their lives, but sometimes in the shadow of depression and right. anxiety and sort of a PTSD thing because it's a trauma. Absolutely. Getting a cancer and getting cancer treatment is traumatic. Right. So it's great to hear you have this psychiatric help. 
Right. Because the future is bright. You know, the cancer therapy is changing, and it changes not by years, not by month, but by weeks. You know, every week something new comes up, new research is being done. Um, you know, I come, after seeing my patients, I come to my lab at night, and, and I do experiments, and I'm just so thrilled about the future. The future is bright. But it's important to remember that cure and treating cancer is not the only thing. we got to keep working. we got to make it better. We've got to cure all these cancers, or we've got to prevent all these cancers so these women don't even have to deal with it. But we cannot forget the quality of life, and we cannot forget that the key for us, as is it is for the patients, is to get back to their normal lives. Yeah, and I, I sometimes say, you know, I think some of this is simple. A, a lot of us haven't been ill but when you have been ill, it gives you insight into this issue. So I have a saying, it's good for doctors to be sick every mm-hmm. so often. Um, but there's also sort of this golden rule of just um, think about how you would want to be treated. How would you want to come through this? And then how would you, what would you be faced with in terms of continuing your life? And I think if we really start to think hard about that, um, there's a lot of support that, are, that our patients are going to need. Absolutely. So we need to kind of carry that through. And I think one of the reasons gynecologic oncologists and radiation oncologists, we we sort of love what we do is that we embrace that. And the long-term follow-up, there's nothing more rewarding than having someone come back five years later um, and, and seeing that not only were we able to cure the cancer, but they were able to put all the pieces back together. Exactly. I think one of the highlights I know of, of sort of my career, I think, you know, we always remember things that... that you uh they always stick in your mind was a patient that I treated um and at the time she was um pregnant she had just had a baby she had a cancer that we cured and she was lost to follow up for 8 years mm-hmm. because she had a very busy family life but it was a very challenging clinical situation and when i saw her her family was sort of shattered mm-hmm. by this um and so one day she showed up in my clinic and and here she is her daughter's 8 years old mm-hmm. Hmm. she's working, she's working as a teacher, Hmm. she has sort of now a full life, and it's all behind her, and I think, you know, having that sort of outcome, which is, for me, you know, the most gratifying that we were able to get her through all these things from a a very devastating point, Um, we did a a very complex implant on her, and my residents still talk about it, (laughs) because it was one of the most complex we ever did, but then, you know, she came back a few times she got back on her feet and then seeing her eight years later in a sort of totally normal like Mm -hmm. I've done it I'm back I'm fully functional that was really one of the most gratifying times in my career I Mm -hmm. think because uh, I saw that it all came together for this person and they had their life back Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's what people fear Yes. Um, and that's a huge part of, of what we can do for them with all of these complementary therapies, the psychiatric support. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's only going to grow, right? I think that's a big part of now what, what's exciting in medicine. Um, Absolutely. How can we put the whole picture together yeah. for our patients? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you said that. I, I tried to brainwash my children to go into medicine, which I'm not being successful. Oh. <laughs> uh, but that's what I tell them, you know, when, when I tell my kids what it is that, that drives me or why this is the best thing to do is exactly what you just said, is to give them their lives, you know, their lives that, that this crazy thing happens. They get this diagnosis, and you're right, the best thing is to talk about it, to see them 10 years later and say, you know what, do you remember that day when I told you 10 years from now we will talk and you will remember this day and I will get you through this and you will get back to normal and you will get your life back. Right. And it's hard for people to believe that um, at the time. 
Um, but I think it's really the promise of the, the patient-doctor relationship, right? That no matter what happens, right. we're going to stick by I you and, and we're going to get through this. And I think that I always tell the residents, you know, you can you can give them chemo, you can give them radiation, but that part of it, just this saying we're going to be there for you no matter what happens. Absolutely. That's, what, that's the seed of what makes that whole line of encounters successful. Absolutely. Um, so when patients know that you're really kind of their, what's the word, their champion, and you're going to stick with them no matter what happens, yeah. and we hope for this great outcome, and, and we see it a lot, that's, um, that's, I think, the key to the real healing that happens, which is really happens in your office every day. Yeah, absolutely. It happens absolutely. every time you walk in the door. It's the absolutely. way that you look at a patient in the eye, yeah. and, and, you know, that's part of yeah. taking ownership for everything yeah, that comes from that point onward. Yeah, Absolutely. I have generations of patients in my office. I now have some people who have three generations who I remember taking care of their mom and their grandmother, and you know, and it's great. It's family. Dr. Elena Ratner is assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.